Hey, this is Jordan Sutton, pastor at Clear Path Church. Thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. We appreciate you listening. A little about our community. We love to come together. We love to come to the Lord's table together. Uh, we're a community trying to be led by the Spirit, just walking through Scripture together, walking through life together. If this message is an encouragement to you, bring some hope to your life at the end of the sermon. There'll be a little bit of information about how you can get in touch with us. Stay tuned, and thanks for joining. scripture and uh here's the deal i just feel like that today is about a uh, about a response like i'm i'm not going to give you some magical easy to apply steps to life that you can believe and use but i think that god wants to do something unique and i think he's already starting it now and so um i'm just going to ask you if at some point this can even happen just while i read the scripture we're just going to start by reading the whole text if, if at some point you feel um, like God is just really moving on you, then I just invite you to stand. And if you're around them, just ask you to lay your hands on them. And uh, we'll just ask God to come and the Holy Spirit to move on you in a unique way that'll change you in a way that five steps to being a better parent can't. So, <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and read the text together. This is John 4. 5 through 42. It's a very common story, so you've likely all heard it before. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. <laughs> Amen. God, give it to him. Give it to him, Lord. <laughs> Jesus, tired as though he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That's going to get a lot of people standing. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers, worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. Yeah. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. I don't think I even need to like give any thoughts. <laughs> this has to be like one of the most, I don't know, like I feel like it's like one of the most pivotal stories in the gospel. Like kind of reminds me of like the prodigal son or something where it just, I, I can read it every day and it, it'll still hit me. <laughs> God, thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you draw us wherever you find us. We're grateful, Lord. All right, so I'm going to start back at the top of this. I'm going to kind of make my way through it in a couple places in it. Um, 
those of you who have heard me preach before, you likely may have noticed the pattern, which is that, um, you know, I'm not like, I'm not like a super uh, historical Bible interpreter or anything like that. But I, what I do really enjoy is finding themes that run throughout the entirety of Scripture. Because I really like seeing like the whole story that God's telling, not the small one. So there's a couple points in this story that God pointed out to me. Um, a thread. It's just, this is just a piece of it woven throughout his story. Um, so I'll try to highlight a couple of those things as we go. So I'm going to go back to the top. Verse 5. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well, I think, is actually significant. This was the first thing that jumped out to me when I had to, you know, I was going to preach this text, and I was like, okay, God, you're going to have to show me what's up with the well, because there has to be something to this. And there is. We'll get to that. And so Jesus says, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And, you know, I think that it, when we read the book of John, he has several points that he's making um, a lot. One of those points is the humanity of Jesus. He seems to always constantly be bringing the humanity of Jesus to the surface. Because I think that it really is an important concept that we understand that we have a high priest who like understands us. It says he's well acquainted with our grief. That he's, he's dealt with all the things that we deal with. And so I love whenever we see a picture of Jesus that's just like some simple statement that's very human. You know, he walked a long way and he's really tired. And so he, he sits down by this well. It was about noon, it says. And it was also, it's also important that it was about noon. Because he meets this woman at the well, and nobody came to the well at noon. That wasn't a thing. Like, all the women who came to draw water came early in the morning to get water for the day. So the idea that this woman is here at noon is unique. And a lot of the things like this that I may say today, you may have heard before. But the, that's, this is why we do this in Lent, is to repeat stories. Like, we need to remember the things that Jesus did over and over and over again and get them down in our spirit, not just know them a little bit in our head, right? So the only reason for her to come at noon, it kind of reminds me of uh, when we were talking about Nicodemus. Like, Nicodemus is ashamed that he's going to find Jesus, so he goes at night, right? Well, this woman is ashamed of herself and the life that she's lived, and she's probably not liked very well by all the people because of her lifestyle. And so she goes at noon because she doesn't want to be seen by anybody else, and she doesn't want to have to talk to anybody else. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Yeah, so if you look at the history of Jews and Samaritans, it's, it's a pretty ugly one. Even after this, there's still a lot of battle between them. They like to destroy each other's temples and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and so, like, as a Jew, he's really not supposed to like her. I mean, like, they even, they call them dogs sometimes, right? So, um... So Jesus is really not supposed to like her. And more so, he's definitely not supposed to associate with her, especially a Samaritan, but even just being a woman. Like, that, culturally speaking in the day, that wasn't okay. So, like, the rule of the day was if, if, a, if you're a man and you see a woman in the street, 
you don't even say hi because of what other people might think or assume is going on between you. And so Jesus comes, and he ends up here alone with this woman, which is very taboo. And he talks to the woman while they're alone, which is very taboo. And she's Samaritan, which is very taboo. Like, if we haven't gotten the point now in Scripture that Jesus is pretty much just wrecking all the religious rules, then you're missing something quite important. Um, Because Jesus did come to bring the kingdom, and he did come to fulfill the law, but he didn't come to uphold the law in a way that brings death. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In another uh, another translation that I read of this, he says, If you knew the generosity of God. If you knew the generosity of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? This is actually funny, because it turns out, whenever I researched a little bit of the history of this text, that there were legends that Jacob's well used to sometimes spontaneously fill up and overflow for no reason. Like, potentially likely from Jacob's command or anointing, okay? So, like, there may be some historical context when she asks them this question. Are you greater than Jacob? You don't have a bucket. The water's way down there, man. You know? So she's like, are you going to make this thing overflow? <laughs> Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water. That word's important, spring, Okay? There's movement to this water. I'm going to dig into this in a minute. But this is not just a, this is not a stagnant well of water, right? It will become in them a spring of water, a spring of flowing water, welling up to eternal life. So that's the result of this spring. It moves, it flows forth, and it wells up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I don't think she gets it yet. She's just a little lazy. (laughs) She's like, it's kind of a long walk. Water's pretty heavy when you're out in a big bucket. She gets it soon. But this this idea of living water and this idea of a a spring of of water inside of us uh, made me start thinking. And I started thinking about all the times throughout the history of Scripture where moving water becomes significant right, and becomes symbolic or important. So I wrote down a few of the times. Um, this, is by f- this is not even close to all of them, but I wrote down a few of them that I thought were significant to me. Um, so, like, I love connecting things to the beginning of Scripture and the end of Scripture, and we're going to do that. So the Garden of Eden, if we start there, it has one river flowing, okay? There's one river flowing, and then that river separates into four. And that's how it waters the Garden of Eden. But the source point is one flowing river. And this water helps water the tree in the center of the garden, which is the tree of life. If we fast forward all the way to the end of Scripture in Revelation, 
we see a river of the water of life flows from the throne of God and the throne of Jesus, bringing life to all places, including, once again, the tree of life, which it says brings healing to the nations. So we're starting to get a picture of some importance of this flowing water, this river, this spring maybe that comes out of us. Maybe it's a part of something bigger. I'm hoping at this point, you know? Um, but it's so cool, like, this, this water is strong enough to, to keep alive this tree of life. It says that the leaves of it bring healing to all the nations. When I think of, like, the end of time, I think of a, a, if there's a time where there's no sorrow and no pain, you know, I think that that means, when I think of the healing of the nations, you know, if there's no pain, I don't actually read this to be the physical healing of the nations. I read this to be the, the internal healing of the nations, that there's no more strife, there's no more war, that this water somehow has the ability to bring peace to wherever it flows, to bring life wherever it flows. And in between these two events, in between the Garden of Eden and this picture of what is to come, we have so many tellings of a living water. In... Um, of a, of a flowing water. Like in Exodus 17, the Israelites have found themselves having escaped Egypt. And what's their problem? They're in a desert, right? Like there's no water. And so they start complaining to Moses, Moses, what are we going to do? And this, this scripture is actually like historically tied to the one reading. And they say, um, they, they named the place where Moses first did this. They named the, the location, a word that means, is the Lord among us or not? And they named it that. And then Moses went and he struck a rock. And the answer to their question was to be given by if water flowed from this rock or not. Because the living water never runs out and it can flow even in the driest place, Right? We carry a living water that flows even in deserts, even in places of the most dry hopelessness. Is the Lord among us or not? And then we have Jeremiah. He warns the people. He says, you have left the living water to dig your own cisterns, and your cisterns aren't holding water. But he says, you have left the living water to dig your own cisterns. They were trying to provide their own way of life. They're trying to live by their own provision, their own strength. And what that gives you is apparently not just a stagnant well that's hard to draw water from, but also a leaky one that doesn't hold water. And now when we find Jesus here in this passage, at the woman at the well, Jesus and his disciples have just come from baptizing a lot of people. It's a new thing, okay? John the Baptist started recently, and it says now that Jesus and his disciples have picked up and been doing it more and more, and the Pharisees have been getting mad because now Jesus and his disciples are baptizing people even more than John, okay? So Jesus is already starting to bring the significance and importance of water back to the community before this moment. Baptism, this this uh, growing trend, which somehow is this mystical thing that brings life transformation from 
being submerged in water, right? So with that stuff in mind, Jesus tells the woman of the generosity of God and of the living water that is available. And when we look through scripture, I believe that the flowing water represents several things. And that probably represents more than this because God's pretty good at tying things together um, a lot better than I am at interpreting. But this living water represents being washed clean and healed of craving more. He says you'll never thirst again. Your cravings are satisfied. And that's what I read when I read the end times when it says that the, the tree of life, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I think that they are healed of craving more. They're healed of the need of power. They're healed of the need to, of violence. They're healed of the, of the need to hate each other. They're always craving something, right? The leaders of this world commonly are just craving more and more and more. But when the tree of life comes, we will not thirst. We will not crave. This living water is a symbol of eternal life. It's what he says. It's going to spring up to eternal life. And this is the main promise of God to us through all scripture. Whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Apparently, this living water is important. This living water is a constant sustaining from the inside, not needing an external source. He says, hey, you won't ever have to go get water again, right? Because once God forms a spring in you, you don't have to go search for it. We as people of God tend to want to be good enough and make God proud and like muster up all the will and courage to climb the mountain of God. But the scripture says, but who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart, right? I'm not going to, we won't just keep going through the scriptures, but the point is that no one can. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. But you don't have to climb the mountain. You don't need an external source because God wants to dig in you a source. And there's one more hint about this a few chapters later. And I really like this one. John 7, 37 through 39. says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. This is cool. This is a cool move. Like, pretty baller move, Jesus. All right. He stood on the table, I think. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So we see that this living water that Jesus references only a short time later. It's not only um, it's not only theoretical, but it's a person. It's a promise of one who has come. See, water is not only a symbol of life, but it's often a symbol of the Holy Spirit 
especially when it's moving and flowing. Very similar to what you talked about last week with the wind, right? For those who are, those who are led by the Spirit are like the wind. We need to catch on to this idea that the Spirit's constantly moving and that those who are filled with the Spirit are constantly moving and constantly flowing, constantly receiving from within, not from outside, from within, and overflowing for the good of others. We want to know how to like change the world, and we always get we always get like uh, confused about like why does it not work? And I think normally, look, I'm not here to be judgmental. This is me too. But I think normally the answer is like, well, I mean, you're just not walking in the spirit that much, <laughs> you know? Like we want like a a better answer that like makes it easier, or or you know, not something that is requires that much effort. But I think a lot of times this is the answer is that we, we're not moving in the living water. We're not, we're not flowing. So living water, really important. Holy Spirit, come give us your living water. God, take away our thirst for so many things that are not you. If you want that, stand now. God, take away our thirst. Take away our insatiable desire to make ourselves comfortable God, break off every selfish ambition. Break off every jealousy. Break off every desire to, to use the power and anointing that you've given us for our own gain. Mm. I was reading about the beginnings of Satan this week. Lucifer, that's what he did. He took the blessings and the beauty and the power that God bestowed on him and he tried to use it for his own gain. God, don't let us do that. Purify us, Lord. Give us the living water that we may never thirst. Break off every bit of thirst that culture has instilled in us. What people think of us, how we look, the favor of man, the wisdom of man. God, let us not chase those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna keep going through. So he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. I think this request of his is significant also. I'll come back to that in a few minutes. So Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you just said is quite true. You know, Jesus is always bringing things to light. They're alone here. So like, it's not Jesus' intent to embarrass this woman. He's not trying to be cruel to her by pointing out like, oh yeah, you're terrible. You've had five husbands. He just knows that in order for us to receive what he has, that all of our junk needs to be brought to light. The Bible encourages us not to live in darkness. It says, says that those who are evil love the dark because they can move about in hidden ways and not be seen. So this isn't what this sermon is about, but God has done this a lot with me over the years, and I encourage any of you, if there's something that you're dealing with that needs to be brought to light, Holy Spirit, convict them right now if there's something. If there's something that needs to be brought to light, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you and bring it to light. Don't carry it by yourself. Don't 
don't hold it. The enemy will, will terrif- terrifyingly own you in that space. And when you bring it to light, there will be freedom. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Not really a hard observation, but, but Jesus doesn't require a lot of faith, does he? Just a little bit. God corrected me right there. That's what just happened. I was kind of joking about it, and God was like, that's all I need. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. So she's bringing up the differences between their cultures and their history. And if you look at kind of the, the beliefs of the Samaritans versus the Jews, they believe, I mean, they do have the same fathers, right? So they both trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which is why they're meeting here at Jacob's well and uh, why Jacob is important to this woman. But since then, the Samaritans have broken off and they've created their own temple and they've no longer followed um, along with what's happening in Jewish culture. And so they're missing all the prophets. They've now missed, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah. They've now missed all of the uh, prophets that would make it a little bit more clear what to watch for when the Messiah comes. But they do have the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they know that there is supposed to be a prophet. And they kind of have this concept of a Messiah. It's just not near as clear of a concept of the Messiah as the Jews have. They also have not accepted the teachings or the blessing of King David. Um, and we know that Jesus came from the lineage of David. And so... The Samaritan beliefs got splintered some years ago. And so this is kind of what she's addressing when she says, like, hey, are we doing it right? Where are we should be? If you're a prophet, tell me, where should I be worshiping? Like, I actually want to do this right, you know? And so then he answers us, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. See, he's saying, you... It's like he's giving them credit for worship. I love when Jesus does this. I love when Paul does this. He doesn't just stomp on people's culture and like tell them that everything they believe is trash. He honors that they're trying to worship, right? He honors that they're trying to worship the true God. And he says, you're trying to worship what you do not know. The Jews have more clarity. So he says, but we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus is not only answering a question of where to worship, which is basically, hey, pretty soon you're going to worship wherever you want to. Like this isn't really that important. What's important is your heart and your willingness. Right? But also, he t- he's telling her how to worship. He's telling us how to worship. Because he says we must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, when I hear that truth word, um, I, think of, I think of worshiping the true God. And I also think of a worship that is acted out in our life. Not one that is all lip service, but one that's lived out. But what I want to highlight today is this idea of, of worshiping in the spirit. 
Because if we, if we fast forward to Philippians 3.3, 3, I think that Paul is kind of referring back to this idea and quoting it. And what Paul says is you must worship by the Spirit. Okay, so I feel like this word gives this word by gives us a little more clarity. Because the truth is that we only come to God if the Spirit draws us. I don't know how to worship well without the Holy Spirit leading. This is the beauty of like if you have a prayer language, this is the beauty of your prayer language. Is sometimes, man, I don't know what to say. So I just trust that the Holy Spirit does. And all my groans and nonsense sounding words, like God can use those because it's just my willingness. And I'm entrusting my prayer to the Holy Spirit, right? And this is the way that we are to live and to worship. There's no true worship that happens if it's not first initiated by the Spirit within us. Once again, we're back to this well of uh, this spring of living water, right? Like the Holy Spirit being planted in us and indwelling us is important because without it, we have no ability for things to flow out of us and for true worship to flow out of us. So if you feel like your worship is dry, then ask the Holy Spirit, will you, will you bring a new spring in me? Okay, because your worship might become, it might be true, yeah. but maybe you're trying to initiate yourself. Yeah. And your worship cannot be initiated by you. It has to be first drawn out by the Spirit. So the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is just a side note, but I always wonder whenever I see the words I am somewhere in scripture, if like Jesus is always like just making this reference back to us, you know, Moses and the burning bush. When they say, you know, tell him that I am sent you. It's like a name of God. So I feel like that he's almost telling her his name as he says, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Because as we said, not cool, right? Like, <laughs> not a good look, Jesus. <laughs> but they weren't that brave. Because I'm guessing they've gotten corrected enough times by now to be like, oh, our wisdom is not very good. <laughs> So no one asks, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? One of the translations that I read says, then basically because the woman was uncomfortable, leaving her jar of water, she went back to town. It's like, like all these guys show up and she's like, oh, like this, this isn't good, right? Like this is very, very culturally awkward. And so, like, she just, like, took off, forgot her jar of water, right? And maybe also, like, didn't need her jar of water because Jesus just told her that he had living water. So she goes back to the people and she says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Man, this right here, this one-liner right here, I think that if we could adapt this, to our, like, to our thoughts about evangelism, we'd be way better at it. First of all, she's witnessed something real, right? We like to call us, tell ourselves we should be a witness. Okay, well, she has. She's been a witness to something real. And she goes back, and I mean, she's just legitimately excited. I don't know how many of you have ever just like gone out and tried to share the gospel with people, but I'm gonna tell you from my experience, 
that when there have been times when I did that out of like kind of like obligation, like I feel like this is the right thing to do, so I'm just going to be obedient, but I'm kind of like trudging through it. Not very effective. <laughs> okay, like like I'm not. There's no excitement in me. There's no life in me. There's no like, look what just happened to me. You see what I'm saying? Like, if we want people to care, then we have to be a witness to something that God does. And we have to let it move us. We have to let it do something in us. And then I love the question that she asks. This is not a sermon on evangelism, but I can't help but do these little side thoughts because they come to my brain. The, the next, the, the, then she asks them a question. She says, could this be the Messiah? I actually love this question. I think this is awesome. Because I think a lot of times, you know, people feel... Um, very judged by our like, hey, you're missing, like, this is the Messiah. I'm not saying there's something wrong with telling someone that Jesus is the Messiah, but I love how she phrases this question. She's not only really excited about it, but she says, could this be the Messiah? She plants this question in their mind. I feel like this question she plants in their mind probably eats through them a lot more than if she was like, I found the Messiah, guys. Because then they might just be like, oh, this lady's crazy. But instead she's like, come and see. Come here, you just, just come look for yourself. I'm not here to tell you this is the Messiah, but could he be? Could you be missing it if you don't come? Yeah. It's beautiful. I heard a funny story this week. This is not going to be a very uh, productive statement, but I'm telling you. Anyway. Brain going somewhere. I heard someone tell a story this week. Uh, one of the actors in The Chosen, he was on a hike, and uh, he was talking about how he became to like be in The Chosen. And he was on a hike up in Hollywood. And he said all of a sudden there was like some commotion over to the side. And he heard all these girls like getting really loud. He was like, what's going on over there? And as the crowd slowly parted, he realized that Justin Bieber was there. <laughs> and he said, Justin Bieber came over and asked him like, hey man, how you doing? And he was like, I'm good. And they kind of were like talking from a distance. And he was like, hey, you can come over and sit with me. And so Justin Bieber came over and sat by him. And, and, and he said, this is the most ridiculous story. I don't know why I'm telling you, but just, just enjoy it. So, so he's like, so I keep talking. I'm talking to Justin Bieber. And he's like, and Justin asked me, like, hey, do you know Jesus? Like, I'd love if you came to my church with me today. And he was like, I mean, honestly, man, if anybody asked me to go to their church, I would say no. But like, you're Justin Bieber. I'm not telling you no. <laughs> So, so he went to church with Justin Bieber, and uh, he went there, and then he just kept going for months, and like they were teaching the Gospels, and he ended up getting into The Chosen. And anyway, okay, that was my side story. So good job, Justin. People want to hate. If you're listening to our podcast, we validate you. <laughs> if he sends me an email, I'm going to be popped. All right. Mm, all right. Thank you, Lord. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? I love how Jesus is always making these like 
very mystical statements and people take them so literally. Like the lady's like, oh good, so I wouldn't have to walk all the way here for water anymore. And the disciples are like, did someone provide food for him? Like, I mean, clearly not what Jesus is saying to us, but I guess we're reading the Bible, so it's kind of cheating. Um, but when I hear people talk about food in scripture, I normally think of a couple things. On one hand, I think of like sustenance and provision. And on the other hand, I think of delight. Anybody like to eat? It's uncomfortable to not eat. And not only that, you like to eat, you made a restaurant. (laughs) Praise the Lord, man. You give people some good spiritual food. So this food, I feel like that what Jesus is, is teaching them is about provision and about delight. When they say, hey, Jesus, eat something. He's like, no, 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 I've got food that you don't know anything about. Because my, my food is to do the will of my Father. And I think that if we can learn, as we live from this spring in us, if we can learn to make Jesus our source of sustenance, and make Jesus, to, to actually trust Jesus as our source of provision, not only for ourselves, but even for ministry, because he's about to talk about the harvest. And not only that, but to make him, make God our source of delight. Like, that's what happened to this lady. <sighs> Y'all see that? Like, what happened to her is that Jesus became her source of delight. It's why her testimony means something. That's why it's compelling. It became her source of delight. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. That is a cool statement. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. You can look at that from like a human perspective of like maybe who started the work, but you can also look at it as that God always starts the work. And that God allows us to be brought in to share in his joy of the harvest coming. Yeah, that's cool. Like you get to share in the joy of Jesus when the harvest is brought in. It's an incredible honor. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. So the harvest, the harvest, this coming to God, that is his provision for us. And that is his delight over us and for us. You know, a lot of times I think like, I ask myself the question like, is this, God, is this God's delight over me or for me? And like, the answer is pretty much always yes. Because God is, God is so generous that he does not hoard these things for himself. Like, God could easily have said, like, I'm God, I'm the boss, like, I'm going to get pleasure from everything that happens on the earth, and, you know, you can just handle it. But, like, God's always calling us into unity. There's always this just absolutely undeserved elevation whenever we walk in the spirit of, I'm going to share my joy with you, I'm going to share my delight with you, I'm going to share my provision with you. 
And so then it says that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. There's a really cool thread throughout Scripture that I found when I was studying this. So like I told you at the beginning of talking, the first thing that came out, came out in my spirit is like, I've got to understand Jacob's well. What's the deal with this? It, it seems, it felt significant, you know? So I started looking back at wells in Scripture. And there are a lot of parallels to the story. And there's something that you probably might not expect. So hear me out. So when we read the story of Moses, Moses goes wandering off and at a well. He meets a group of women and he defends them and he talks with them and he draws water from them. And then he's invited to a meal with the family and then one of them is given to him in marriage. Starts at a well in Midian, I believe. When it's time for Isaac to marry, Abraham sends his servant and he tells him, go back to the land of my forefathers and find a wife for my son. So the servant goes back to that place. And where does he go? He goes to the well. And when he goes to the well, he meets this woman named Rebecca. And he realizes that she could be suitable as a good wife for Isaac. And the woman goes back, just as Zipporah did with Moses. The woman goes back and tells her family about this man she just met at the well. They invite him for a meal. And soon after, there's a marriage. When we look at the story of Jacob, we said that Jesus stopped at Jacob's well, right? This probably is not the same well. This is probably a well that Jacob dug, but still significant. When we look at the story of Jacob, Jacob ends up being in the land of his forefathers. He goes to a well to get water. And... He meets Rachel there, and he draws water for her. She goes back, and she tells her family about him. And soon after, they're married. And we have Moses, and we have Isaac, and we have Jacob. And these are like leaders of Israel, okay? So I'm not about to tell you a, uh, a, an earthly romance story about Jesus and the woman at the well. But I do think that it's really interesting that Jesus comes to her, when he comes to her, he asks her about her husband. He asks her about marriage. And it's possible that the people in Israel would have also, you know, they, they very much catch on to these things throughout Scripture. So if you start hearing, if you're an Israelite and you start hearing a story of a man meeting a woman at a well and talking with her and asking her to draw water, right, then you might have some connotation for this. They've heard the pattern before. I know that some of you might be like, you're misinterpreting this. Just hear me out. <laughs> so only 10 verses before this, John has been telling us, the, the writer of this book, and we're talking 10 verses, right? John didn't write things in chapters and verses. He just wrote a big paragraph, like things that came before the other one are connected. Right before this, he's been preaching that the bridegroom has come. So Jesus travels to Jacob's well, not in the land of his forefathers, mind you. This is symbolic. 
He meets a lowly woman. He asks her to draw water, and then he tells her of his endless living water. She leaves to tell people about it. Then, at this point in the story, we always happen to see food, right? A lot of times they're invited to a meal. Well, instead, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Jesus, you should eat. And he's like, there's no need for food here. My food is to do the will of God. And then the Samaritans come to meet him and express their devotion to him as the Savior. So I'm going to tell you what this is. This is an expansion of the bride of Christ to all people. This is an expansion of the bride of Christ to the lowest of the low people that had no hope of finding the Messiah, had no hope of being included. This is a marriage story, but it's not an earthly one. It's Jesus claiming his bride. And so we have the story here of living water and the spirit. And we have the story of the making of a bride. And as I was praying this morning, it reminded me of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come together. They're both required. The spirit and the bride say, come let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life without price. See, Jesus is beginning to teach the disciples that the harvest is ready. And some will sow, and some will reap, even where they did not sow. But he knows that this sinful woman's message to the people will cause many outsiders, many of who were unworthy, many who were rejected by the Jews, to come and see. And his living water is for all who will come. God is looking for those who are thirsty. Always looking for those who are thirsty, not those content to forever draw their own water from their own well, but those, not those who desire possessions, not those who desire the approval of man or the power of pleasure, because those people will not feel the need to ask for living water because they want the credit that I've done this well and I got my own water. But the requirement is that you humble yourself and you thirst. You have to thirst. It's the, it's the last chapter of our scripture. The last chapter of this beautiful picture of some sort of end times explanation the spirit and the bride. I love that it's together. Like, it could say the spirit says come, you know? It could say, like, Jesus' bride says come, and everyone listens. But that's not what it says. It says the spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life without price. Because we know that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And so my question today, God is looking for those who are thirsty. Is it you? Are you content to dig your own well and draw water from it? You want the credit? Or are you thirsty? God is also looking for those who will sow and reap a harvest. 
What about that? Is that you? Is it me? If you have tasted the water of life, then will you join with the Spirit? And will you say, come? Will you tell people, come? I just met a man who changed everything. Willing to say that? Could he be the Messiah? Jesus, I thank you that you give us living water. I thank you that you dig something so profound in us that it just keeps springing up. I thank you that you give us your spirit to partner with and said that we, we are one. That's our desire, Jesus, to be one with you. May we join with you. Spirit, come. And to all who are thirsty, come. Thank you, God. I'm going to be fast. I know it's late. Y'all go with me for a second. I was thinking about wells and the spring of living water, if you will. And uh, probably my brain goes somewhere different than anyone else in the room, unless maybe someone has background that I don't know about when I think about a well and a spring of living water. Um, so I'm a nerd. I have a petroleum engineering degree. Um, and like, well is not an uncommon term for me to hear because that's what they call it when you go drill a hole in the ground and you complete it, you, you complete a well. Um, so I was thinking about like wells and kind of this analogy and like, I don't know, sometimes it feels corny to like med make metaphors and reaching and then I think about that Jesus is like doing it constantly in his teaching. So I really felt like I was supposed to share it. Um, and I'll tie it into communion here, but I was telling Sarah a while back um, that I really felt like the spirit wanted to move in her life and, um, but that I did not feel that God would do that unless there was a breaking. Like there has to be some, and when I say that, I mean just like brokenness in the sense of like, there's an admission of I don't have it all together and like I need you to help me. Like I can't do it on my own. And there's a brokenness. Um, I was mentioning it to Zane a while back actually and he had a line that I think he shared in our house church. I don't think he said it here when he was talking about um, his sabbatical and he said, I thought I was taking a break, not breaking. Really, it, it turned into breaking. So whenever they complete a well in a field, um, y'all may not know, but they don't actually have to like suck oil out of the ground. There's Whenever oil is down there in the ground, trapping the rock, it's at really, really high pressure. And then at the surface, there's basically zero pressure. So they drill a hole in the ground, they case it with a bunch of steel casing, and then they create perfs that they, perforations that they shoot into the rock formation and it allows the oil that's trapped in there to start flowing out. So I'm thinking of this obviously in the context of the scripture, like as um, God like digging a well inside of us and like that then there's this flow of the spirit that, that comes out, right? So they came up with something years ago that's really controversial. Um, called hydraulic fracturing. And here's how, how hydraulic fracturing works. So <laughs> they actually go drill and they drill to a target depth of wherever the formation is. And then instead of drilling vertical, they penetrate horizontal all the way through the formation of whatever their target depth is. And usually they do this and they do it to a lot of wells, but usually it's most economical in ones that are like tight. 
um, where the rock is not letting go of the oil easily. And then they pump a whole bunch of really, really high pressure, um, like a gel typically, that becomes liquid down at like down hole temperature and it's usually filled with some sort of sand or glass or something like that. So how it works is it basically goes through those perforations and it almost explodes the rock. Like it completely breaks it. And once there's a breaking, if you will, if you see where I'm going, there's something that's left there that's all of these um, bits of sand or glass beads or whatever that the water can flow through that fills all of the cracks. Because otherwise, all of the formation would just collapse back on itself and nothing would flow. So when they do this and it breaks open the rock, there's this breaking. The rock is finally ready to like let go of what it's holding on to and the oil or whatever we're shooting for here, right, can actually flow out of the rock completely. It's not like a very slow flow. It's like an explosion, like a spring that comes out from underground, right? And they have to have really special equipment at the top of these wellheads, like to even be able to contain how much uh, stuff is coming out of there and what they can actually produce it at because it comes out at such high volumes. Um, so anyway, I was just over there like praying while Zane's talking and God's just talking to me about like in the midst of this, that for there to be a spring that comes out of you, that it, it may be for someone, that there has to be a breaking. But that when he breaks you, he won't leave you just cracked. Like that he's gonna leave stuff there to fill in those gaps. And it may be some of the stuff we talked about earlier this morning, even like the promises um, that we hold on to and just God's faithfulness um, that sustains us in that breaking. So that's one of the, the cool things about communion that we don't think about a lot is that we're actually invited to share in the brokenness of Christ and even uh, the breaking of bread that represents his body that was broken and the blood that could flow, you know, after that. So um, we're going to take communion together, but before that, I just want to pray. Like I said, I'm trying to be quick, but I just want to pray. God, I just ask that you would just meet people in this room where they are, God, and that people would come to you in, in brokenness, God, that we would allow you to um, explode our hearts, God, where they're tight, where they're a heart of stone, God, that you would uh, just begin to open up those cracks, God, that you would you would put pressure in the areas that it, it needs to for us to produce, God, and then you would be faithful to fill in those gaps, to fill in the cracks, and that you would just allow us to share um, in the brokenness of your cross, God, that's represented here by Holy Communion, God, by the, the sacraments, the elements that we have here. We just thank you for your your broken body and your blood that was poured out for us. We ask that you would just, God, just give us more of your spirit that, God, that we can just flow through you. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode from Clearpath Church in Dallas, Texas. If you'd like more info to visit us on a Sunday morning or to subscribe to our newsletter, check us out at www.clearpathdallas.com. Follow us on Instagram at Clearpath Dallas. Thanks for listening.